question. We, we are going into some pretty deep and hard and difficult things we know because it's going to describe the tribulation period. But it's about Jesus. I told you that in the first week. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And the events that we're going to see as they get more intense and more difficult, let's keep our focus where it belongs. It's on Jesus. Uh, we have quite a view, by the way, in the book of Revelation. Uh, it's not so much, if you will understand this picture, that we're down here on earth looking up, trying to figure out what he's trying to say. But the writer, John, takes us up there, and we're looking down and see what's going on. Uh, quite a few years ago, I took my son to a Thunders basketball game in Oklahoma City, and we got cheap tickets, and we didn't know where we'd end up, but it was in the last row, way up at the top. I'll tell you how high that is in case you've never been there before. I was kind of terrified to sit in my chair. Because you felt like you were about to fall down. How many, I don't know how far that was. But they have this little blimp that floats around and it tosses little gifts out. We were above that. <laughs> I, I was looking at the blimp going down around there thinking, they can't possibly get anything up to us. But uh, that was pretty high up. And I'm not one for heights. But that's the book of Revelation. If you really want the perspective, you're standing up there at the throne where the Lord is, looking down at what he's going to do. And I hope that helps you keep this perspective. We're into chapter number five today. So far, we've gone intentionally four weeks, four chapters. Here's number five. We're going to do it all. There's not many verses, though I have to admit it's hard to cover all the things that we can and how much we have to leave out. So I do encourage you to keep reading the chapter ahead of time. So you might glean more than what would just be mentioned here this morning. In chapter 5, the primary focus I will have this morning will be from verse 9 and 10. I'll read that first, and then I'm going to read the whole chapter. And they sang, verse number 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Now follow with me as I start in verse 1. Work our way all the way through this chapter. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And no one in heaven on, or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent in, out into all the world. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, 
each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. And you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Heavenly Father, again, we have the privilege of looking into your word and to see something that is written yet to happen. We long for that day when we will see our Savior and we will see what he will do in this scene. Today we take a glimpse at it and we ask that your spirit might direct us through this. Help us to understand what we should and encourage us with it, we pray. Work in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a continuation, by the way, of chapter 4. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 are scenes in the throne room of heaven. There's quite a scene we, pe- uh, we took a peek at last week. And I'll just take a few seconds to uh, remind you of what we viewed in chapter number 4. There was a room that John said had a throne in it. And somebody was sitting on that throne. He said there was a rainbow around that throne, and it was green or emerald in color. He said that there were 24 thrones in what appeared to be a circle around that one throne. And there were people on those too. And out of that throne, there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. There were seven lamps of fire burning before that throne, and they're described as the seven spirits of God. There was also before that throne a sea that looked like glass, like a crystal. And that's what John could see as he took a view of this room. He noticed there were worshipers in this room. There were 24 thrones in that circle, I suggest. Elders sitting upon those thrones, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their head, which is the Stephanos crown in the Greek, which meant it was a reward. It was a reward for victory of some kind. Whatever it is that they did when they served the Lord, somehow it was with some distinction, and it represented uh, what they'd done, I, I imagine. That's the crowns on their head. And also described as an inner circle was four living creatures. Kind of an unusual way to describe an angelic being. Matter of fact, they were quite unusual. They were creatures with eyes in the front and in the back. They had appearances. One of these looked like a lion. 
And another one looked like a flying eagle. And another one looked like a calf. And another one had a face that looked like a man. And they all had six wings. And they had eyes everywhere, it says. (laughs) Kind of an interesting kind of picture. And continually, day and night, they never cease to proclaim that the Lord is holy. And they say that, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, which was and which is and which is to come. It kind of reminds me of those angels in the book of Isaiah, chapter number 6. They're called seraphim there. I don't know if this is the same group or a different group, but there they had wings. But they had six wings. Two of them they flew with. Two of them they covered their feet. Two of them they covered their face. And they also shouted, holy, holy, Lord. Maybe there's seraphim and there is living creatures. You know what that suggests to me? Heaven is going to be a noisy place. There is a lot of praising going on up there. And what's remarkable, we're going to see this in the book of Revelation, about halfway through all the judgments, heaven goes silent for about a half hour, and that's got to be one of the most remarkable scenes of all. Because all since God has created these beings, that's all they've ever done, is proclaim His holiness. Over and over. If you were transported to heaven right now, I hope you're waiting a few minutes at least, but I know we'd love to go. If we're transported there right now, we'd see this scene. These around the throne praising the Lord constantly. We would see that. It's quite an impressive, impressive scene. And we talked about them. They give honor and glory. They're speaking of His holiness and His power. The fact He's the Creator. He exercises His will and whatever He wills happens. It's a pretty powerful scene. And we also wove in the fact in verse number 9 of chapter 4 that they're also saying thanks, which I find is very curious. They're saying thanks. I can't wait to meet these folks. But as their worship keeps going, we see the elders falling out of their thrones and casting their crowns at the Lord's feet and giving Him praise. And it just keeps going on and on and on. And that's where we stopped last week because chapter 5 is continuing the picture. All right? John hasn't left this spot. He's still standing right there in his sandals looking at this scene. And the last thing he saw was that they were worshiping the Lord and he takes a closer look at who's on that throne. That's where we start chapter 5. He looks up again and back there on the throne... There's that one. He didn't describe him much last time, just a picture of a, a jasper stone, picture of a sardius stone, kind of a bright red and, and clear in appearance, a combination of kind of things like that. But he's looking at this throne back again, and he says in verse number 1 of chapter 5, and I look, and there he sits. But I noticed something this time. In his right hand, there's a book. Probably, more likely, a scroll. Probably a scroll. He's looking at God the Father. I want to make that distinction for you because it makes sense later in the chapter when we start to talk about somebody else who shows up on the scene. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Father sitting on the throne. 
And he has this book in his hand. He's seated there with this book in his right hand. Now we're going to start to go through the rest of the chapter where it talks about the activity centered around that book. I know it's a curious thing. John was curious. <laughs> what is it? What's in it? I want to know. It was, a, it was some sort of a scroll, we believe. Dr. Charles Rivey said it was. I listened to him back in 2012. Here was one of the, the highlights of my education, if you will. 2012, just after we had moved here, a little while later, I had a chance to go down to Fort Worth area. Dr. Ryrie taught for three days on the book of Revelation. All the way through it. He was up in his 90s. And boy, was he sharp. I was amazed. Enjoyed it immensely to sit and listen to him teach the book of Revelation. With all that experience. And all that study and all that he puts into it. If you got a Ryrie study Bible, you got a glimpse of some of the things that we got to enjoy when he was teaching us there. And I remember him saying, this is a scroll. I said, okay. Uh, and then he starts to describe it. He says, it's a scroll, as Scripture says. It's written on the front and the back, but it has seven seals. And the concept of that is it's like a legal document. And each of those seals marks a section where one person, this is about them, and then the seal is broken, and this section is another part of that legal document, and that's for somebody. And then there's another section, and that's for somebody. And it says, you have to have the authority to break one of those seals in order, because it's about you, or it has to do with you legally. And so you have that authority to break that seal. But what's interesting in this whole picture is, John is looking for somebody not to break one seal, but to have the authority to break all the seals. Something that pertains to him and him alone all the way through. Because it says no one could do it. No one had the authority to do it. As John's looking around that throne room, he says, wait a minute. Who is worthy to open and break the seals? That's yes on there. It's plural. All of them. Who's the individual capable of all that? The answer in verse 3 and 4 is no one. And they looked. Apparently they looked up on the earth. They looked in heaven. They looked under the earth. They looked everywhere. Nobody spoke up. Because nobody could. Nobody had that ability. Matter of fact, the way it says in verse 3, no one was able to open the book or to look into it. Able. That's one of my favorite words to teach my Greek students. Dunamai is the verb. Dunamis is the noun. In English, we translate it into dynamite. It's the word we use for power. He gives us a power to be the sons of God. We talk about that. And, and I've heard people teach this way. That it's like dynamite. But dynamite destroys things, folks. It blows things apart. If you had dynamite, you could do some pretty good work on a book. All right? He's talking about ability here. Who has the ability to do this? No one. No one. That's what they're looking for. The ability to do it. And John starts to weep because no one was found worthy. You see that in verse 4, don't you? 
Verse 5, an elder speaks up. One of those 24 sitting around there speaks up and he says, Stop weeping. Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book in its seven seals. And John probably felt pretty good about that answer. And he's thinking, wow, this is great. That's what we need. We need a lion. We need the power of a king. We need somebody with great authority to come in and, and open this seal. Now, the description is a lot to unpack, folks. Look at it. A lion of Judah. The root of David. We're speaking of the power of, of one who's a leader among a whole clan. Serves as a king. And yet has the force of a lion. Suddenly, there's a new person in the room. Verse number 6. John says, so I looked. And I could almost say it here this way. I didn't see a lion. (laughs) I, I was looking for a lion. There was no lion. I was looking for somebody with great authority and power, like a king. And what did I see? A lamb. A lamb? I know you think for real powerful things when you think lambs, don't you? Football teams love that. To call themselves the lambs. You don't feel intimidated by a lamb, do you? No, you don't. But this is a unique lamb. And there's a reason for such a name. Right? I looked in verse 6. Between the throne with the four living creatures... And the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, suddenly appears. John did not record him being there before. If he was there, he didn't notice him. Now he does. And he's standing right there up before the throne, among that inner circle of the four living creatures. He's standing there, a lamb. Now, you've got the picture in your mind, don't you? You can picture a lamb, can't you? You've got a picture in your mind? Put seven horns on it and seven eyes. Okay, it's different. It's a unique lamb at that. We're not going to go into all the depictions of what seven horns and seven eyes have to do with this, because we'll be here all day. But stop with this one. This lamb was standing and yet appeared as if slain. A slain lamb. I had to look that one up specifically and share it with you. Spazzo is the word. You spell it S-P-H-A-Z-O. Spazzo. Interesting Greek word. It means to butcher. When you are sacrificing an animal, you butcher it. Not just kill it, you butcher it. There are ten references with that word in it in the New Testament. Ten times it appears. Most of those are in reference to Jesus and his crucifixion. A few times it's a reference to believers who are butchered in the tribulation period. 
It's not a pretty sight, is it? One time it's used in 1 John 3, verse 12, to describe what Cain did to Abel. When God asked for a sacrifice, Cain gave him one. He butchered his brother. That's the word John chose to use. This lamb has been butchered, and yet it's standing. We have no trouble linking this picture with Jesus Christ, do we? The fact that he was crucified for us, and he was a man whose appearance was not easily seen. Read Isaiah 53. There were remarkable pictures of what was done to him there. We see him butchered as our sacrifice, and yet we know he stands today because he rose from the grave. He rose from the grave. What did John the Baptist call him? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. The description by that one elder to John was, Look, that's the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's the root of David. He's overcome. So he can open the book and it's seven seals. Now a lion, what do we call a lion? The king of the forest, right? Powerful, powerful picture of a lion. The tribe of Judah. A tribe promoted in prominence in the family of Jacob. If you go through the family tree, it's not a pretty one, by the way. Reuben was the firstborn and he lost his uh, uh, position because he violated one of his father's concubines. Simeon and Levi were the next two in order, and they together slaughtered the men of Shechem. You come down to the fourthborn, his name was Judah. He's not a pretty picture either, but he's the one that the Lord had promoted to the position of authority. In Genesis 49, it was uh, uh, Jacob who read off some blessings to his children before he died. The Lord uses those. Those were prophetic in nature. They were recorded in Scripture. And this is what he said in Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. That's capital S. Shiloh, speaking of our Savior. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now there's Judah, and here he speaks of, of the tribe of Judah, the lion. There's a reference to a scepter there. But you keep on going through the description of that elder in verse 5, and he's of the root of David. David, of course, was given a a promise by the Lord, right? That his descendants will be on the throne forever. We say, ultimately, that has to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And let me tell you how simple that is. 
Solomon was a descendant of David. And then you start Rehoboam and you start the whole list of kings. We're studying those on Sunday nights if you want to come and join us. But if you go through all those kings, they all had one problem. They all died. Not one of them could fulfill the promise perfectly, which is he will sit on that throne forever. There's only one who fulfills that position. And you know who it is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that he reigns forever, a descendant of David, a descendant of Judah, one who is like the lion, that's all great descriptions. Great descriptions. Only Jesus could fulfill it. Look at the action here and the reaction. Verse number 7. Chapter 5, verse 7. He, the Lamb, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. He came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Remember, that was the Father on the throne. Jesus came and took his book. No one else could do it. No one else could do it. In chapter number 6, he will start to peel back those seals. We'll start that from 6 and 7 and move forward. But the response to him taking that book is what the rest of the chapter talks about. Suddenly it's not so much, well, what's in the book? But who has the book? Who is worthy to hold that book? Who is worthy to break its seals? That's where the focus suddenly goes and that's where it stays for the rest of the chapter. On the worth of the one who has the book. When he had taken it, verse number 8 says, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Hold that thought. It's very important. Each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I want to just mark something. These creatures, these four living creatures, and the elders have only one person they have been made to worship forever. And that's God. That is their sole job, is to worship Him forever. Forever and ever and ever, is to worship God, and only God. Worshiping God is all they do. What are they saying to us in verse number 8? When they fall before the Lamb and worship Him. Jesus is God. Man, that should just pop circuits in our minds. Wow! We look for proof texts to say, how do you know Jesus is God? Take a look at these guys. Their only job is to worship God. And there He is. (laughs) And they know it. There wasn't a question mark here. The Father didn't have a frown on His face. He recognized that the Lamb must be God. And they sang a new song suddenly. Verse 9. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seal. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. I want to go backwards just a little bit on these verses. Start at the end and work your way up toward the front. 
Don't miss who they are describing. Chapter 1. Now, keep your eyes right here. Chapter 1, verse 4 and 5 and 6, I read to you several weeks ago. Keep your eyes right here and watch for the same words. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Chapter 1, verse 4 is where I'm starting. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits that are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. Are those not the same type of words you're just reading here? They're singing a new song, but what are they singing about? Jesus and His church. What He has done to purchase that church. It's really, really important to me, and I don't know if I could say it all in the right words. I'm going to try, because it's not easy. Why was Jesus, the Lamb, worthy to take the book? Follow with me for a minute. Okay? It's not simply because he was a lion. It's not simply because he was of the tribe of Judah. It's not simply because he was of the family of David. Those words link him to being a Jew, too, by the way. That links him to humanity, too, by the way. And it's not primarily that he's a lamb slaughtered for the sins of mankind. That, of course, makes him a savior, right? We got a savior, we got a man, we got all these pictures. But this is what stands out to me, and it really stunned me to look at it and look at it carefully. Verse 9 says, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals because. The Greek word, that's hati. That always gets my attention. I say, I love because phrases. Because it's going to tell you what. What? Because you were slain. It doesn't say you were a lion, or you were a descendant of David, or you were this or you were that. You were slain is the primary statement. You're worthy because you were slain. And you purchased for God with your blood the church. Woo! You made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. Same thing as chapter 1, verse 4, 5, and 6. You did that. Ready for this? Jesus did something no one else could do. No one else could redeem the church. No one else could die for the church. No one else is worthy to be called the head of the church but Jesus Christ. Him alone. His death was what shows us the worth that God gave to him for what he did for the church. I remind you of this. This book was written to the church. And it's supposed to stop us in our tracks. And we're not here looking at some other story about some other people, about some other things. We're looking at what did Jesus do and what does he mean to us in the church. 
He's worthy because he bought the church with his own blood. It's his. It's his. Church belongs to him. Let me deal with the word worthy for a minute because I talked to you last week a little bit about it. But I want to show you something else to add to that thought. It has a sense of weight. Heavy things. Weights. All right? And the idea is basically a very curious idea of setting scales with two sides to it. And you put the item on one side you want to weigh. On the other side you put the weights to measure it by. I asked you last week, what what exactly would be worthy enough to put on this side to measure God by? I have no idea. But that's the concept of the word, because they're talking about what weighs, what weighs, and what weighs. Now, usually, and this is what people think, they're wrong, but I'll tell you what they think. They think that when they die, God's going to pull out a set of scales. He's going to put the good things on one side and the bad things on the other side, and Hopefully you kind of pull up on the good side. That's what they think. It's not going to be that way. But that's what they think. All right? So when we do this, we are talking about the things we do, right? The things we do goes on the scale to, so we can measure. That's the way we think. This is not the term that you're looking at here. Because it's not measuring the things you've done. It measures your inherent worth. What is that? Who you are, not what you do. When you stop and look at it this way, it's amazing, folks. He's saying, I see Jesus as worthy, not because of the reputation he earned by doing A, B, C, D, E, but because he is worthy because of who he is. Now, this is where it gets fun. You ready? That's the first word for worthy that pops up on the page. And there's another word called timius, T-I-M-I-O-U-S, or I-O-S. And that is worth earned. It's a word for reputation. You ready for this? A king can get the honor because he is a king. And a soldier can get honors because of great deeds he's done on the battlefield. A king doesn't have to do great things on the battlefield to be honored as king. But the soldier just doesn't get recognition just because he's a soldier. He earns the reputation by the good things he's done. Jesus Christ has double the worth. Because he not only inherently is worthy, but by reputation and deeds he is worthy. In every single way, it's so much better. Bigger than what we can imagine. When they declare his worth, they say, you are worthy. And then they say, and you slain, purchase with your blood, the church. And they're looking at this as this divine person, one of the Trinity. Only Jesus qualified. Ready for this? Only Jesus was the descendant of Judah. Not the Father, not the Spirit. Only Jesus took on flesh. Only Jesus was of the family of David. Only Jesus was the slaughtered lamb. 
Only Jesus died for the sins of the world. Only Jesus paid the price of the purchase of the church. That's why this whole scene is on him. It's a double honor. It's a double picture of worth. Because not only is he God, but he is also the one who fulfilled everything God called him to do. It's double worth. It's like, wow, really? Yes. And what does that mean to you? What's that have to do with the book? What's in the book, folks? Do you know? What's in the book? Judgments. Right? Not a happy tune. He, the seals we're going to see next week, they're full of judgments. Why? Why is Jesus the only one who can open that book? Let me tell you why. He has the right to judge those who has opposed his church. He has the right to bring judgment on this earth. Now we know he's the creator, but we also know he came unto his own, John says. He came into this world, and the world that was made by him did not know him. He came to a world that he had made. He had the rights of a creator. And he stepped into a world, and it judged him, and it rejected him. He has the right to judge it. He came to his own people, it says in 1 John 1.11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. They cast him off. They rejected him. They reviled him. They crucified him. He alone has the right to judge those people. To judge that world. And to top it off, he is the head of the church. To judge a world that has rejected his people. And it still does. He has the right to it. Now, a lot of people don't want a Savior who judges. <laughs> they don't want a Savior who judges. They want the meek and mild form. They want the gentle form, the loving form. They don't bring judgment into the picture. They say, talk about Jesus saves. Don't talk about Jesus judges. The Apostle Creed. You memorized that before? Maybe years ago you had it in your memory. Maybe you still do. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge. Judge the quick and the dead. You know the Father glorified him, right? For the work that he did. The Father said in Philippians chapter 2, even though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he, took him, he emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant. Being in the likeness of man and found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name. And this world will glorify him. Because someday at that name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth. 
and every tongue will confess, and it will be yours too, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not Savior, Lord. Every, every individual will recognize He is Lord. He has the right to judge. He has the right to judge. Every knee will know that. Chapter 5, where you are in Revelation, verse 11. I looked, he says, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, living creatures, elders, numbers of them, myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessings. Every created thing that is in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. The four living creatures kept saying, Amen. (laughs) The elders fell down and worshipped. Listen, as members of the church, we belong to Jesus Christ. He purchased us with His blood. He made you who you are. He made you what you will be. To say, worthy (laughs) to Him, is that too hard for us? To give Him glory for what He's done for us? To stop and say, you're my Lord and you're my God. Just to say, my, in front of any of those words is an amazing thing. My Lord, my God. He's coming. We know that. The promise is there in Scripture. But let's not look at Him the same way anymore. When you read this text, when you see chapter 5, when you see that He alone, only Him, is worthy to open the book of judgment. I'd much rather be His His saved church member than the one He's going to judge. I'd much rather be saved, wouldn't you? What a glorious thing He's done for us. He's going to show us what He's going to do to the wicked, I know. He's going to show us what He's going to do to this world, I know. But I have a hope fixed on Him that I love. I love it. And that's why John says, and everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. You're going to see Jesus pretty soon, folks. You're going to see Him for who He is. I know you're going to recognize His worth. (laughs) Nobody gets outside of that story anyway. Chapter 5, verse 11. You're in there. Everybody's going to do it. Let me ask, is your heart ready to give Him worth? Is your heart ready for that? Or is that something you resist today? Examine yourselves, would you please? Because everyone who has this hope fixed on Him will purify himself. If there's something that needs purified, get started. Because I don't want anything to cloud my vision when I go to see Him. Do you? I don't want anything to be a hindrance between me and my Savior. I want my life to give Him worth. I want my thoughts to give Him worth. I want my words to give Him worth. I want my heart to give Him worth. It's a challenge that we're going to have every single week when we go to talk about this, because someday you're going to see the Savior. And I want your heart to be ready. I want it to be ready. You're going to see Him.
Read chapter 6 next week and see what's in the book. We're going to be there next time. Heavenly Father, what a glorious display this morning. A view of our Savior. How great you are, Lord Jesus. How great you are for who you are or what you've done. We stop and say thank you. Thank you that we have the privilege of seeing this and knowing it. And yet also the hope that's within us. That this scene in heaven we will view. This Savior we will see. We long for that day. We long for that day. May each day of this week be in preparation for that day. Check our hearts, Lord. Check our actions. Check our attitudes. Drive us to this throne that we might see Jesus. And we thank you that he purchased for us, purchased us with his blood, who gave us of our sins, made us new in him. What a glorious thing we talk of today. What a wonderful thing it is to belong to Jesus. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.